Hello, welcome to The Pen, The Lens, and Everything in Between. I'm your host, Lenny Sherman, and today I'm going to talk about my new book, The Last Sunrise in Tokyo. It is a fiction book that I self-published on Amazon. It's a very different kind of project for me. Those who know me, who've known me in junior high and high school, people thought that I was going to be a science fiction writer, and this is as far from science fiction as you can get. It's a story about two people who come from very different backgrounds, and they connect over a few shared interests, including a girl. The story is told through the eyes of Harmon, our protagonist. He's an American who's been living in Japan for a good four years, and we don't really know why he's there, but it's basically his home away from home. And the other character that he meets in the story is the 67-year-old Haruto Ota, who is a resident of Japan. He was actually a combat fighter during World War II, and we find out that he doesn't exactly like Americans that much. He especially doesn't like Americans who date his daughter, Moriko. Moriko and Harmon are very close in age, a few years apart, and they meet, and they fall in love, and a couple months down the road, the idiot button turns on, and Harmon wants to meet Moriko's parents and that's when Moriko reveals that she only has a father and they go to meet him at a guess who's coming to dinner situation and it doesn't go very well for Moriko or Harmon. The rest of the story is really this kind of unlikely friendship between the father of the ex-girlfriend Haruto and this who we think is a you know a naive kind of innocent 24 year old American man and uh, they have more in common than you'd think. It's funny because when I started this, I wasn't planning on writing a story. I wasn't planning on writing anything. It wasn't as if I were planning a story about racism or about cultures. It started with a daydream. I'm very fond of video games, and I, I really like arcade games because you can get a nice little 30-minute fix by playing a quick arcade game, uh, you know, the kind you put quarters into. And on my computer, I have a bunch of MAME games. MAME allows you to play arcade games on your computer, I was playing the actual 1943 game. 1943 is a shoot 'em up. It's a top-down shoot 'em up that came out in arcades in 1987. There was an NES port. That's part of a series, actually. And I was playing it, and shoot 'em ups can be very monotonous, meaning you're pretty much doing the same thing over and over again. It's a coin op or an arcade machine. Arcade machines, primarily, their objectives were to get as many quarters from you as possible. So. The developers of these games often made them very hard because the objective was to keep stealing quarters from you. But with MAME, at the push of a button, you can insert a coin and keep on playing. That's kind of the beauty of MAME. And I was daydreaming about what it would be like to have been in that era in 1987 in Japan when this arcade game came out. Because arcades in Japan never really went away like they did over here. Arcades have always been very popular, and as a matter of fact, they still have new arcade machines coming out over there today. So uh, the video game industry has always been prem over there. Over here, it's a little different because aside from the video game crash of 1983, it took a while for games to become mainstream. Video games were kind of something that were considered niche for a very long time. You were considered a nerd or a weirdo if you played video games, I think. And that kind of gradually went away in the 90s, but it really became mainstream mainstream probably in the mid-2000s, I want to say around the time the Nintendo Wii came out, when they were giving those to people in nursing homes because of the, the Wii Sports title and stuff. And now they have an award-winning TV show on HBO based off of a video game, so take that. Well, it hasn't won awards yet, but it's, it's very critically acclaimed. So I was actually daydreaming while playing this game about what it would be like to be in Japan and to walk in an arcade in 1987 
and to be able to garner attention from being really good at this one game and something I never got to experience because my wife isn't really a gamer and there aren't really arcades left. What would it have been like to have a cute little, you know, Japanese girlfriend putting her head over my shoulder and kind of watching me be really good at this game while a crowd was kind of cheering me on? That was the fantasy. And the daydream just turned into, well, with my luck, you know, this girl being that she's Japanese and I'm American, she'd probably dump me for another Japanese guy and I'd end up befriending the dad for some reason, because that's typically what happens. That actually happened to my brother. My brother was married for a little bit, and uh, they're no longer together, but it, it seems like he's still friends with the family of his ex-wife. They're very close, and a lot of the times when I would make good friends with someone, I was usually friends with the parents as well. So I took that idea, and then I said, well, maybe there's a story here. That was kind of the seed, was this daydream. It started with Harmon and Moriko, his girlfriend. And I said, okay, well, I'll develop this relationship a little bit and make it seem like this kind of sweet relationship. And then, well, she'll dump him because she's kind of shallow and she'll end up dating a Japanese man and he'll screw off somewhere and he'll end up befriending the father. And I said, well, if I'm going to spend time developing these two characters and developing this romance, I don't really want to just have her leave him because she's shallow what would be the catalyst that would make her leave him so i did a little bit of research and one thing i found the differences between american culture and japanese culture there's a saying in japan the screw that sticks out the farthest gets hammered down in japan people there it's you really don't want to stick out in america it's expected that as you grow older you want to try to kind of get away from the nest and become your own person individuality is actually very strong in america and in Japan, the family is very important. Even after you get married and you move out of the nest, you don't want to do anything that's going to reflect negatively on your family. So I got to thinking, well, what would it be like to date somebody in Japan who your parents aren't very fond of? So I had to kind of fill in the blanks myself, but I thought, okay, in the 80s, it might have been taboo for interracial couples to see interracial couples walking around. But there had to be a reason why the father, Haruto, would disapprove of these two being together. And then I started doing the math, and I started thinking about, well, the games at the very beginning is 1943. What if Haruto actually fought in this Battle of Midway that took place in 1943? If he had fought in the Battle of Midway, he let's say he was in his early 20s in 1943. And then let's say he decides he gets married after that time and he decides to have a daughter, Moriko, in the 60s. So he'd be in his mid-40s by the time he had Moriko. That happens, you know, parents, some parents can have kids pretty late in life in their 40s. I don't think that's an abstract idea. And because of their age, there are complications at birth, and that would explain his wife passing away. And I, I did that mainly because I didn't want to focus on two parents. I really wanted to focus on Haruto as a single parent. And I did some research on the Battle of Midway, and all the pieces kind of fit in my favor. Because the Battle of Midway was the turning point for the American forces in World War II. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the Americans went into war, we were losing that war for quite a bit. And it was the Battle of Midway that was kind of the turning point for us in the Pacific. The Japanese lost that war and the soldiers who went back to Japan were immediately sent back out to fight other battles. There's a point in the story where Haruto says that 
the only things in history that were told are kind of the good stories. So the Japanese Empire at the time, of course, were ashamed of their losses, and they weren't upfront with the Japanese public about their losses. Now, there's a section in the book where you find out that because of the Japanese defeat in the Battle of Midway, a lot of Japanese families were destroyed because the empire was doing everything it could to stop this information of their failure getting around. That part was embellished on quite a bit. I actually drew inspiration from how the Americans treated Japanese Americans during the bombing of Pearl Harbor. During that time, thousands of Japanese Americans were rounded up in America and taken to internment camps. And then we apologized for it, like, I think 50 years later. That inspired me to say, you know, well, if America can do that, so can some other country. And that fueled the racism of Haruto against Americans and how he, f he, he would feel about his daughter dating an American. We also learn that Haruto is very protective, which is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. But the story started to come together and I figured, okay, we're going to have this chapter where Harmon and Haruto and Moriko are sitting around the dinner table together and Haruto doesn't know that Moriko's new boyfriend is American. And there's this uncomfortable conversation, and I decided that right there, Haruto would disown his daughter. That is a huge disgrace in Japan. Then I came up with this character of Kenji Fujita, who is the foil to Harmon, of course. I set him up as this amazing pro-athlete baseball player in Japan because athletes in Japan have a little different stigma than they do here. Here, yes, athletes here are admired and they're considered heroes, but there's also the stigma of, well, athletes do drugs and athletes are corrupt. And in Japan, athletes are seen more as wholesome. So I created this Kenji Fujita to be this kind of front for this facade throughout the whole story until we realize what he's really about. And how he treats Moriko later in the story, because Moriko ends up with Kenji in the middle of the story. That was the driving force that spurred this relationship to develop between Haruto and Harmon. Haruto, who dishonors and disowns his own daughter because of her relationship with Harmon, and he can't stomach Harmon because he's an American, well, it turns out that uh, Kenji is not very nice. He's actually very abusive, and there are things going on behind the scenes that Haruto wasn't really aware of. And so a few months later, when Harmon is trying to pick up the pieces of his life and get on with his life, Haruto meets up with him and tells him, you know, I was wrong. I don't like Americans. I have a reason for the way I am, but I would have much rather her been with you because she was happier with you and she was taken care of with you. That's where the relationship develops. And then the other thing that I thought was kind of fun was that we find out Harmon has a secret. Harmon has a reason why he's living in Japan. It's not just because it's his home away from home, although he he does he is very interested in Japanese culture even before he goes to Japan. There is a reason why he left, and what I think was kind of fun about the story was throughout the whole story, first Moriko, and then when it switches to Haruto, they always ask him, why did you come to Japan? And very much like the Joker in The Dark Knight, Harmon sometimes becomes the unreliable narrator and kind of dances around the topic. He doesn't lie. He just tells, he has different reasons for why he came to Japan. And he basically, at one point, tells Haruto, who is very, he gets agitated with all of the dancing around and all of the questions. Harmon says, maybe you're just not asking the right question. So I found that very intriguing. So that's kind of the gist of the story. I don't know if I spoiled more than I really should, but it's a very different kind of story, but it's a story with characters. Basically, 
I asked myself a bunch of what if questions to get the story rolling. So it started with this daydream and this kind of idea, this nugget of a scene of Haruto meets Moriko at this arcade and their relationship develops and they go out dancing together. And then the chapter, the first chapter kind of ends with this very sweet, almost seductive sex scene. I, I really like the way that whole chapter came out, by the way. I said, okay, well, if they're together, you know, what happens after they get together? Well, we'll pick up two months later and then we'll introduce the Kenji character. And then what happens? How do we get Harmon to meet the father? And then I said, what if Harmon really wants to impress the father because maybe he's thinking of really being serious with this girl? So they go to dinner together. We have this whole backstory of Haruto's involvement in World War II, and he was a combat fighter, and Harmon, despite everything he tries, isn't making a great impression, and that fuels the breakup between the two of them. And then what happens when this happens? What happens when this happens? And it all kind of started to come together into a story. When I had enough seeds, when I had enough details, then I sat down and I wrote a story outline. I don't write a chapter outline. I, I've done that before, and I just feel like at that point, you might as well just write the entire book. But I write a paragraph outline. It's basically a very condensed version of the story. It's every scene, every major location. I try not to write dialogue unless I come up with a line that I really like. It's basically just character interactions, character beats, maybe some backstory, but it's told chronologically in paragraph form, basically everything you're going to see. And then once I have the outline and I'm confident that, you know, hey, this is kind of an interesting story, then I sit down and write the words chapter one. And that's where I get into the details of the locations. You know, for example, in that first scene, it's Harmon going into an arcade. Well, I've been into an arcade, not in Japan, but I, I kind of have memories of what an arcade sounds like. The arcade games that were there, the sounds, what I would see when I would walk into an arcade, which are usually teenagers and adults, playing different arcade games. And some, some arcade cabinets would have lines around them where kids would gather around and they would put their quarters on the control panel waiting to get their turn. So that was a lot of fun. I chose to self-publish this book because I've been very intimidated with the process of sending out to a publisher. When I was younger, I struggled with how to approach publishers and I didn't realize till years later a lot of publishers don't accept unsolicited material. You have to go through an agent. It used to be you would approach an agent to represent your work because most publishing houses would only talk to agents. So the agent was kind of like the middleman between the author and the publisher. The thing is, is that a publisher, they only trust agents who represent certain people to kind of weed out who's good and who's not. So agents, their jobs are to promote their clients with you know strong pieces of work so what you would do is you would write a query letter just a one page almost like a memo that told the the agent you were approaching who you were your background and you would give a little synopsis of what your story was about you'd give a word count and then you would send that in with a self-addressed stamped envelope i used to hate that because you're basically spending two stamps every time you send in a query letter and then maybe three months later, you might get a response. You might not. If they thought your story was promising, they would ask for some sample pages. It was a process. It was a long process. And the process I see now is you still approach agents, but it's all done through email and through electronic forms, which is better. But there are so many agents out there that represent so many different types of writing that it was really intimidating. I had published some science fiction novels before on Amazon through KDP, which is a program that allows you to self-publish. 
How self-publishing used to work was you would pay for all of the copies of your book. You would approach a publishing house and pay for all the materials and all the copies. They would print whatever you ordered, and then it was up to you to sell those copies. If you didn't sell them all, then you were left with stock that you'd have to sell off and get rid of. It was a risk, and that's what kept me from self-publishing. The way that Amazon does it and some of these other self-publishing companies do is it's, it's all print on demand. So you don't spend any money up front. The thing about it is, you know, I made a big stink about it when I started self-publishing uh, in 2019. But anybody can self-publish. It isn't like there's someone there who likes your work so much that they approve you. There's not much of an approval process. You submit your work very much like uploading a YouTube video. And a day later, you're self-published. What I really liked about this program is it's not just the ebook format because ebook publishing has been around for a few years now and it's very easy to get something published in an ebook format. I was intrigued in seeing my work done in a paperback format, which I kind of like. They set up the paperback for you, all the binding, the cover and everything. And when someone orders a paperback copy, they only print them on demand. They only print a copy when there's an order in there. You don't have to pay for you know, 100 copies in advance. Whoever wants a copy, they order it from Amazon, and only when the order is complete do they print the copy. It was an interesting process, and it was really cool. I remember when I announced that I was publishing one of my stories as a paperback, someone I work with was excited, and she ordered a copy. She was excited that she ordered the very first one, and there was a misprint, like, on the back cover. I felt so stupid. The very first print ever ordered, and it had a misprint on it. The thing with self-publishing, obviously, is when, when you go through a publisher, once you get that first deal, they pretty much take care of everything. They take care of the marketing, the advertising, the costs of distribution, all that stuff. You just kind of sit back and collect the paycheck. With self-publishing, obviously, you don't have anybody in your corner, so you have to do all of the marketing and the advertising yourself. You would think it'd be easier with social media, and it is, but Facebook only reaches so many people. And I don't have a lot of followers with my Facebook. So, you know, I've been reaching out through Twitter. And when I first started publishing, I would reach out on Facebook quite a lot. I was very active in 2019 when I was trying to promote my work. It's only now recently that I've been really trying to push it even further with this book because I really believe in this book. The people who've read it seem to like it and, and really think it's an actually good story. The first few books that I published, I wrote them when I was very young, and I didn't really go back and change them because, you know, I, I thought it was interesting to read these from the eyes of my 16-year-old self. There's no way that I could go in and revise these stories as I am today for a number of reasons. The main one, which is the storytelling is just not very good. The characters don't have any motivations, and it's really just a lot of scenes and a lot of world building for the point of world building because it's science fiction. And to go in and rewrite these stories, it would be like writing an entirely different thing. You know, these were stories that I wrote as a teenager, and I've kind of moved away from science fiction a little bit. So I, for the most part, aside from some spelling things, I, uh, I left them really untouched. And I got some feedback on them. And people who read them are usually very honest. And they say, you know, I like this. I didn't like that so much. And I take it all in stride. I don't take it personally because I was very young when I wrote them. This one here, though, The Last Sunrise in Tokyo, even though it's not very personal, there are personal things in it. For example, Harmon comes from Michigan, and specifically the Detroit area. And in the story, he's got a dad who worked in an, on a newspaper stand and did some automotive sales, which my, my dad is actually, he, my dad was an automotive technician. So there are some instances in the book that are close to home and are, uh, are somewhat biographical. 
But I just love the storytelling. I love the characters. I love the fact that it doesn't really paint a positive message, so to speak. And that's something you can't really do with films because there are just certain things that won't go through a studio if, you know, the message isn't clear or if it's not giving you a great message. When you write a book, you don't really have to do that, especially when you self-publish. Because I love the way this story ends, but it's not a very positive message. But that's fine. I, I find it, uh, you know, a, a, a very entertaining piece of work that I put out there. Well, now that that's out of the way, what I thought would be kind of interesting would be to go online and to dig up some questions that are most commonly asked of writers. Because even though I'm still growing my audience, I still consider myself a writer. And I just thought it'd be kind of fun to answer these questions. So let's take a look here. So where do I get my ideas? They just kind of come and go. I'm not the kind of person that can sit and write, you know, for hours on end and, and spin out gold or, you know, I used to just jump right in if I saw a blank piece of paper or I would open up Microsoft Word and I would just write whatever and scenes would come to mind, characters would come to mind, but I'd have to sit there and really think about stuff. With the case of The Last Sunrise in Tokyo, it really just came as a daydream. It, was, it, it wasn't like I was trying to even come up with a story. I was daydreaming about being a Japan and playing an arcade back in 1987, and that kind of, the, the seed of that idea developed into a story by asking a series of what-if questions. What if this happened? What if this happened? And then just developing it well before I even started the story outline. But it can really come from anywhere. Um, lately, I've been kind of toying with the idea of doing a fantasy story. I, I don't have a lot of details. There's a fantasy series in particular that I've been kind of drawing inspiration from. I, I've been toying with the idea of taking just things from my my own life and converting them into fantasy and seeing if maybe I can make something interesting out of it. A lot of people have have told me to write what I know, and that's that's a pretty good idea. But you have to be you don't you have to be careful with that because the idea you know the idea behind writing anything is to come up with your own ideas. So you don't necessarily have to just write you know what you know, but incorporating yourself into your stories is very important and incorporating your own experiences into your stories can can be very important in terms of writing realistic characters and relatable characters. It's also a good idea, I, I feel, that if you're going to write about yourself or inject yourself into your stories, sometimes you have to take a look back and look at the bigger picture of yourself. I do that all the time where I have to kind of pull back and, and not just put my experiences in there, but kind of how others view me as a person you know that's really important what is your writing process like my writing process is essentially I don't write anything until I have a good enough idea to put down on paper as an outline and I don't start chapter one until I have an outline down and the outline for me is just basically these are the story beats these are who the characters are and where they come from and then when I sit down to actually write the to write you know the actual chapters that's when I put in the details the dialogue and I get a really good feel for the characters but there's all kinds of ways you can approach your story the way I look at it is kind of like a job interview. Um, if you're in the position to do any kind of hiring at your job where you're actually interviewing candidates to be hired into your job, do you hire the first person you see off the street? No, you sit down and you really interview them and, and make sure they're a good fit for the job. And I would say, believe it or not, with characters, it can be that way. You don't want to just start jump into your first chapter and not know anything about your characters because then you're just making stuff up 
on the fly. Sit down and have a discussion with your characters. Write out a scene with characters and get a feel for your characters before you start writing your story. What advice do you have for writers? Well, I've, I've been writing for a long time. I've only been published for three years and it was self-published. So I've never actually had anything published by a publishing house. But um, advice to, for writers, I would say persistence. I've had a hard time with this because I don't write every day, but I should. I would set aside at least 15, 20 minutes a day to write anything, whether it be brainstorming, whether it be an outline, whether it just be prose writing or whatever. Sit down sometime every day to write just so that you get the habit down, get into the habit of writing. I am my, my own worst critic to this day. I, you know, I'm very hard on myself when it comes to my writing, especially my earlier stuff. Don't take crap from anybody, least of all yourself. It's okay to take criticism that is going to, you know, to help to help your writing in the long run. But if you beat yourself up too much and you criticize yourself too much, you're going to be too self-conscious of, of that to actually produce anything good. And keep in mind that, you know, your first draft is not going to be your best draft. And rewriting is inevitable. I've done it with pretty much everything I've written to a certain point. With Last Sunrise in Tokyo, I think I, I didn't rewrite a, a you know an entire section of it, but there were definitely sections that I would go through and, and maybe try to find out how to write a certain way. For me, it was really more the believability of the characters that I wanted to make sure was consistent throughout the story. You don't want to have characters that, you know, they're... they're they act a certain way the whole story, and then the very last act, they're a totally different character, and you don't give any reasons as to why that is. And that's something I struggled with a little bit. But, um, yeah, basically just don't give yourself a hard time over it. Your first draft of anything is not going to be great. And just understand that the more you go over something, the more you rewrite something, the better it's going to be in the long run. What is the first book that made you cry? Let's see. You know, I cry a lot at movies. I can't think of a book that's really gotten that kind of response to me for me. Probably the closest that I've come to crying would be there's a series of books called The Sword of Truth. There are a series of fantasy books. The author who passed away a couple years ago, unfortunately, his name is Terry Goodkind. The books are very similar in tone to like Game of Thrones without a lot of the political the, the political themes and things it's it's nowhere near as political but it would it, if it had been adapt it was adapted into a show that was put on ABC which was a mistake um, it's the kind of show that would have done very well on HBO because of the level of violence and that kind of thing but it's it's a long series of books and there was a book in the series called I think it was called the Pillars of Creation and in the book the main character Richard he's married to this woman named Kaylin, who in the books is a mother confessor. Their romance is kind of the heart of these novels. And in this particular book, Richard gets taken away by uh, a witch, essentially, to this new world. And uh, this new world doesn't believe in magic. It's a very dark and gritty world that he's being taken away to. Presumably, he's never going to see his wife ever again. And as a matter of fact, the witch that takes him, I think her name is Nikki, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a long time. But she puts a curse on Richard. It's it's called a, uh, I think it's called a maternity curse. What it basically is, is Kaylin, his wife, is connected to him through this bond. So anything that happens to Richard, 
Kaylin will feel. There's a section of the book where this witch who has abducted Richard forces another man to have sex with her. And the man who does it is very, very rough. And she does this just so that Kaylin will feel what's going on. Anything that happens to her, Kaylin can feel. It's, it's a really violent scene. But this is a world that Richard is in where he's being led to that is just hopeless, just full of hopelessness. It's, it's a very grim world. And he's basically a slave for the majority of the book. But Richard is also a sculptor. He's very good at sculpting things. And there's this slab of stone that in a spare time when he's not working or whatever, he carves out this image of him and Kaylin. And it's this beautiful image. And when the people in this world see this, they like break down and cry. And, and no one's ever seen anything of, of such great beauty before. It's, it's a really powerful moment in this book. And it got got very close to being tears you know unfortunately literature it, it doesn't have like the power of film in terms of you don't have the music you don't have the performances so for me at least it doesn't really lend itself to as an emotional of an, ex of an experience as a film that's one of the reasons why I was so interested with filmmaking does writing energize or exhaust you neither one really I don't do it enough to really exhaust me. I don't if I did it every day, if I did it as a, if this was my full-time job, it would probably be very exhausting because it can be a lonely profession and sitting in a chair for hours on end writing, it you know, it can be lonely and it's, you know, you're constantly thinking up of ideas and that could be exhausting. Energizing, it can be energizing if I'm writing something that I'm really into. A lot of the times, honestly, I have to kind of force myself to write because I don't always do it every day. I write in stretches. I might write every day for like two weeks and then I'll stop for a month and then I'll come back to it. I don't recommend that. It's just because of my schedule, I... I just write when I have time and when the inspiration kind of comes. When I was writing Last Sunrise in Tokyo, I was writing pretty steadily for about six months and then I stopped and I came back to it about six months later to finish it, to finish like the last four chapters. Um, and I knew what the story was going to be. I had the outline, but I just didn't, I couldn't get motivated myself to finish it. What are common traps for aspiring writers? A big one is... Watching a lot of TV and movies and injecting that into your work, I did that a lot, and it led to me copying stuff. Be careful of that. I know when Stephen King wrote The Stand, he resisted writing that book for a while because he was very much inspired by Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And you can see that influence all throughout the book, especially if you watch the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. That influence is all over The Stand. But it's it's a contemporary version of that story, so it, it works. The Stand is one of my favorite novels. It's a very dense novel. Um, I really enjoy that book. But yeah, he, he resisted writing that for a while because he didn't want to copy, you know, Tolkien. And that's very easy to do when you're taking inspiration from something else. So trying to be original while borrowing from others, just be very careful that you're, if you're borrowing something, you want to pay homage. You don't want to copy something though. Those are two very different things. I would also say I wouldn't, some people don't write outlines and that's fine. I think you should have some kind of a plan. It's very easy 
because I used to do it. It's very easy to, to sit there on it with a blank page or a piece of notebook paper and start writing a story and write and write and write. And some people, I'm sure, could do that and be very talented at it. But be careful that, you, you know, you don't want to run into like a roadblock where all of a sudden you have no idea where to go because you didn't plan things out, which is a very common thing. That's where writer's block comes from, I feel. What is my writing kryptonite? Finding the time, really. And I know... It, it's kind of a cliche, right, that when someone says, well, I just don't have time. You need to find time. If you really want to do something, you have to find the time to do it. Me, I mean, I do have time. When I get out of work, you know, usually I, I'm, I'm home by 5, 30, 6 o'clock, and I just have other interests, and there are things I'd rather do sometimes than sit down and write. That's all there is to it. I've turned, I've, I've kind of gone back to gaming a lot. Uh, PC gaming a lot of the times I like messing around with my computer sometimes I'll stop and watch a TV show or a movie but you know there, there's just different ways that I like to devote my time and I don't always devote that to writing so yeah distractions are really my kryptonite you know when I could be sitting here and, and be writing my next book I've got ideas for what I want to write next but I haven't actually sat down and, and fleshed anything out have I ever gotten reader's block I guess that means like where I don't know what to read next. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I don't read a lot. For a while, I was reading graphic novels because, you know, I, I like to think that I'm visually oriented. And with a graphic novel, you get, you know, the images as well as the storytelling and the dialogue. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I like to read like autobiographies about famous people. There is one that Jenna Jameson wrote, I think, called How to Make Love Like a Porn Star. I mean... You know, come on, it's an interesting book. It really is, you know, and the industry that the the adult film industry, it, it is kind of interesting to me what goes on behind the scenes. You know, that, that was kind of a guilty pleasure. But yeah, I'm not afraid to admit I read that. In high school, I read Howard Stern's Private Parts. I like reading filmmaking books. There's one that Robert Rodriguez wrote called uh, Rebel Without a Crew, which is about how he made his first film, El Mariachi. I like reading books like that. Lloyd Kaufman has a really good one called All I Learned About Filmmaking, I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. That's a really good one. And Lloyd Kaufman, his books are funny, too. They're very entertaining. I've read coffee table books like Crystal Lake Memories, which is this big coffee table book about the Friday the 13th franchise. I love books like that. But I, I don't, yeah, I don't read a lot of, like, fictional books. You would think I would, but I, I, I just haven't had the interest to in a long time. Does a big ego help or hurt writers? I like this question. For me, it hurt me for a long time because when I first started writing, I, I, I had a really big head on my shoulders and I thought I was going to be the best writer in the whole world. And here I am 40 years old and I've only been able to self-publish, you know. I guess that's me being down on myself. Yeah, be careful of your ego because an ego, I don't think, helps anybody write. You know, I just I used to I remember like in junior high, there was a contest. There was like a Halloween contest and anybody who wanted to submit a scary story could. And the winner of the contest would have their story. The principal would read their story out loud over the PA. So I'm kind of glad I didn't win that contest. But I remember when I entered that, I was like, I told everybody, like, I'm the best writer here. I have the most experience and I love horror you know, there's no way I'm going to lose this and I didn't win. So, yeah, ego, I think, can only hurt, especially when if you haven't published anything, if you, you know, if you're not getting stuff out there, I don't think there's any reason to really have an ego, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. And, and even if you are famous, even if you are the next J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, I don't know. I don't think anybody really likes to see egos or likes to deal with egos. I try to stay away from that for sure. I, I'm very... 
I like to consider myself very humble when it comes to my writing. I, I don't mind answering questions, but you know, when someone buys my, when someone tells me, Hey, I bought a copy of your book, you know, I, I, I gracefully thank them. And I'm very thankful when someone says that I, I'm just happy to sell four or five copies. You know, I, you know, that's just me. Do you think someone could be a writer if they don't feel emotions strongly? I mean, yeah, you can. I mean, the reason I, I like to be emotionally invested in a story, you know, there are some some works out there, especially like classic works that don't have a lot of emotion in there. I remember in college, I read Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, and that that book is structured so strangely and the way that, you know, there's a lot of run-on sentences. It's almost like you're reading a, a consciousness of thoughts rather than an actual narrative. I'm not saying, you know, stuff, you can write stuff like that, but I mean, emotion, you know, we're all human and we all, as humans, we react to things emotionally. You know, if you, if you're not writing with emotion, if you don't feel emotion strongly and you're trying to write, you know, I'm, I'm probably not your audience. You can, but I I don't know. I have a hard time reading things that don't feel like they're human, if that makes sense. So if you don't feel emotion strongly, I don't know how that would translate, but I'm not saying you can't. What other authors are your friends are you friends with and how do they help you become a better writer? I'm not really even part of any writers' groups, really, so I don't have any friends that really write. The best I, I can think of, I have a friend who told me she was working on writing a novel and I'm waiting to hear back from her so I can read it. I have friends who have tried writing in the past, but I don't know anybody who's actually sat down, written a book and published it where we can talk to each other. This friend who's writing, who, who was telling me that uh, she's writing a book. We were friends in, in elementary, friends in junior high, high school. And we just kind of reconnected a few years ago when I started to self publish. And I thought maybe she'd be interested in, in reading some of my stuff. And well, she was actually I, she, the first person I sent the my first draft of The Last Sunrise in Tokyo. I sent her a draft of that, and she helped me kind of go over it and edit part of that. So, you know, I, I you know I'm, I'm very thankful to that. But yeah, we don't really even when we talk about the book, we don't really talk about the basics. You know, she'll tell me, you know, I really enjoyed it, or you know, I'm not too sure about this part, you know, or there's a spelling error on this page, you know. But I don't really have anybody that I can really talk about our projects with. I'd like to. That'd be kind of cool. I have a very, you know, I kind of live in a bubble. It's it's me, and my wife, my kids, my coworkers, you know, and that's basically my bubble, you know, and. We all have very different interests. So, do you want each book to stand on its own, or are you trying to build a body of work with connections between each book? I think that's really fascinating when an author kind of builds a shared universe. The only one I really know this is, and I'm not talking about somebody who's known for writing an entire franchise like G.R. Martin or J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or these people, you know, who write these really long fantasy novels. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about writers who have separate bodies of work that are all kind of connected. And the only writer I know of who does that is Stephen King. I think that's kind of a cool idea, but it can also make your world smaller in a sense if everything is connected. I don't try to, you know, have a connected universe, a shared universe. I mean, it'd be kind of cool to think that one book I write might take place in the same world as another book. Obviously, like the Galactic Redemption trilogy, it's a trilogy. It's, it's a 
you know, it's a series. So, of course, that takes place in the same universe. But, I, yeah, I don't have any ideas for putting my stories, linking them together, even thematically, really. It's really just a matter of I just want to tell different stories and that, that have different themes, and you can't really connect one to the other. What was the best money you ever spent as a writer? That, I don't know. I've never really spent a lot of money at it. With self-publishing, I mean, you can throw as much money in, into it as, as you want. For me, you know, I don't spend any money on my writing. The first time I published, I self-published was uh, with Galactic Redemption. I, I, the cover that I used for that book, and it's still the same cover. I never went back and changed it. It was, it was a generic cover that I got off of Amazon because they give you a, a template of covers to use. With my, my autobiography, Try Hard, I took a picture of myself with a cup of coffee and green screened it out, just keyed out green screen because I took it in front of green screen and used that as my cover. With Last Sunrise in Tokyo, I took a bunch of images from Google and just kind of played with them, manipulated them in Photoshop to make my own cover. But I, I just never, I don't have the audience. You know, if I had the audience, then I would definitely spend more money on an editor and cover art and things like that. But when I'm only selling, you know, 10 copies of a book, you know, I'm, I'm doing it because I enjoy doing it and I like sharing my stories with other people. When it's in a published form, it, people accept that more than if I just give them a packet of paper, you know, a manuscript or something I wrote. No one's going to read that or email them that. But if it's published and they're purchasing the thing and it looks like something you'd buy at a bookstore, then they're more likely to read it or listen to it in the case of an audiobook. Yeah, I don't spend a lot of money unless you consider... Like, you know, I used to buy those, uh, the writer's market books, and I don't even think those are relevant anymore because you've got Google for a lot of that stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. What did you do with your first advance? Nothing. I'm a self-published writer. I don't get much money. <laughs> you know, once in a while, I might get a check for four bucks from Amazon because I sold a couple of copies, you know, randomly. Because somebody that didn't know I was a writer all of a sudden found out I was a writer and decided to to buy the ebook, you know, I don't know. I mean, if I ever got a really nice advance, I would pay down my debt. I've got a lot of personal debt right now that I'd like to kind of pay down like student loans and things. Uh, that's about it that I can think of as a writer. What would I choose as my, as a mascot avatar or spirit animal? Huh? That's a good one. I've always thought my spirit animal would be a lion. I don't know why I just, you know, there's something very majestic about a lion. I actually wrote a screenplay that takes place in Africa, and lions play a big part in that. There's just a lot of power and majesty in the lion. I also like dragons. I don't know. I, I don't really have much of an answer for that, really. What do I owe the real people upon whom I base my characters? God, that's a tough one. I didn't really base the characters. If you're talking, if you're talking about The Last Sunrise in Tokyo, I mean, Harmon is I based him on me just the whole thing about being a gamer and, and being a photographer I was never a photographer but you know being a videographer it's kind of the same field in a way and uh, I've been fascinated with Japan enough to do research on it to write this book you know I've always had a fascination with Japan I love movies that take place in Japan for some reason I haven't really seen a lot of like Japanese films you would think I would have what does literary success look like to you that's a good question I've never really thought about it. Literary success. 
I dread the day where if I ever do write a book that's really popular where I don't have to work a nine to five anymore and I can make writing my full time job. I kind of dread that because then I don't know if I would enjoy writing as much. It would just be a job to me. So literary success, I guess, would be like, it'd be kind of cool if I was able to do something. I was successful enough to have decent supplemental income, almost like a second job where I could write part time and still work my full time job to where writing didn't get like mundane or boring to me, but just, you know, make enough on the side where I'm doing something, you know, that I enjoy doing enough that it's, you know, it's not making me rich necessarily, but it's just good supplemental income. That'd be all right. What's the best way to market your books? This is probably the one I'll end on. I, I'm still trying to build my audience. There's all kinds of ways to do it. I think with me though, my, the thing I'm struggling with the most is kind of finding one unique way of building my audience. I'm trying all kinds of different things. What I'm doing is the equivalent of throwing darts at a dartboard and seeing what'll stick. You know, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm trying the podcast and I'm going on Facebook. I'm even posting to Twitter once in a while. This was the first time I did an audiobook. Uh, I'd like to go back to try hard and do an audiobook for that. That'd be interesting. I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, that's I I've been self-publishing for three years and I still haven't really found an audience beyond family and my coworkers, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to research that, but that's the thing when you're self-published, you have to really market yourself and put yourself out there. I've been trying to do that for three years and uh, it's it's really hard and I'm not ready to do this full time yet. You know, I'm, I'm not making a lot of money at it, but, you know, I keep putting that out there that I'm not making money and nobody pays me, but... You know, I, I don't write in the hopes of making money. I write because I like to tell stories and it's kind of a hobby at this moment. And if I can put my work out there and people are enjoying it and talking to me about it, there's a girl I work with today who was telling me she was reading my, my audiobook for The Last Sunrise in Tokyo and she was really enjoying it. And that really, you know, she's she's pretty honest with me. If she wouldn't, if she didn't enjoy it, then she, she'd probably tell me so. So, you know, that meant a lot to me. I'm going to try to do at least one episode a week. And uh, I enjoy talking about this book. I'm still kind of trying to figure out where this podcast is going and what else, what other subjects to talk about. But I do appreciate you listening. And I hope you find this podcast insightful and hopefully not too annoying. And uh, I hope you just keep listening. Thanks again. Talk to you later.